standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 219 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I will never tire of watching Nick Cave and Warren Ellis make beautiful ear carnage. Did you go to All Points East at the weekend by any chance, Mickey? I did. I sat in a field on Sunday and it was delightful. I bet. I did see a big poster for it when I was on the underground the other day. I had a slight bit of envy. And fair dues, right? But I quite often see people walking past me, men walking past me in the street, particularly in particular streets in Walthamstow. And my go-to in my head is, oh, that would be Nick Cave if he hadn't been a successful Nick Cave. There's a real look. (laughs) Yeah, there is. So well done, Nick Cave, on very (laughs) successfully Nick Caving. I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I bought a new mirror at the weekend that was so big. Says I can carry it. You lift it up in the shop and you go, yeah, that'll be fine. And then you go like 20 metres and you're crying. Anyway, (laughs) I had to turf a a really generous wee boy out of his buggy so I could get it home. Did you know the wee boy in question? I did, yeah. His mum, who you both know, kept saying... We'll have to tell Daddy how far you've walked today. <laughs> and I was like, I'm helping him reach a milestone by like literally going, mate, you've got to get out and walk. I need to rest this on your buggy. Was it literally a milestone? Did you make him walk a mile? Possibly, yeah. But I will say, honest to God, Romford TK Maxx, what a find. Oh, yeah. I've been there with, with said friend, in fact. It's, it's a good one. It's a good TK Maxx. You want a yeah. TK Maxx a tiny bit out of town or in a town where mm. no one else shares your taste? You want it in Romford, mate. <laughs> yeah. Halifax was also excellent, I can't be honest. <laughs> I'm Jenniford and I already missed the heat wave. I'll oh, shut your oh, mouth. Jen, you were whinging about it when you were too hot. I know, but it's now it's all windy and autumnal and cold. Oh, it's and fucking great. I love it. And- I don't think it's about this. I think it's because you're about to turn 40 and you're worried about your own autumn. (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't even thinking about that. (laughs) I am about to turn 40, it's true. I don't like to think of it as autumn, Mick. I like to think of it as a front kind of summer. Indian summer. (laughs) (laughs) Indian summer, why not? Yeah. I thought you would like autumn because you are an autumn baby. Aren't you supposed to like be a big fan? No, because I'm actually... Don't make me talk to you about seasons again. Why can't people understand the simple fact that a season is three months long? So I am technically a summer baby, although I have always considered September to be autumn. I am an autumn baby, Mickey, and I like Late autumn. November, I know, it's yeah. hard. But people probably think that you're a winter baby, right? Because people yeah, don't they, understand yeah. seasons. <laughs> When will they learn, Jen? When will they learn? I don't know. I feel like seasons are just something that we've done made up, really, because like the seasons work, but we've just gone, oh, but we've got these 12 months and we've got to like, wouldn't it be nice if it was, if it was three months each? We're just going to stick that in, make that circle fit in a square hole. But September is still hot. Usually. Can I just say something, though, at the end of that, which is I am really glad it's not hot because one of the annoying things is that people will say, when you moan about being hot, people will say, Oh, but you moan when it's cold. I am categorically not moaning. Jen no. is moaning. I am not moaning. <laughs> I slept under a duvet the other day for the first time in a good two years since I slept under a duvet. I think I must just feel heat very differently to you, Hannah, because I have, with the exception of like a couple of weeks, slept under a duvet consistently like the whole summer. Me too. You're like my mum. My mum slept under a duvet on the day it was 42 degrees. She's a I, fucking no, psychopath. I didn't go that far. I did. I just had a leg out. I had a leg out and then probably a lot more Oof. of me out when I was asleep and then got back in. I like the weight of a duvet. Exactly. Exactly. It makes you feel like you're going to sleep, whereas like otherwise you might as well be on the fucking beach or something. Like, what's, what's this? <laughs> exactly that. I don't understand Americans. They don't do duvets. They have like those funny little thin quilt things and you're just like what what is this shit what is that a continental quilt it can't be no that's a duvet my nan used to call duvets yeah, continental, continental quilts. quilts it's because they came from the continent obviously they call them comforters in america that's what they're called yes they, they do. do yeah yeah not as comforting as a duvet though is it I'm reading a book about travel, got an interview coming up, a really good book about tourism on the history of tourism, like people first encountered continental quilts. Mm. 
and, and we're like, what is this? Where are the blankets? And it's amazing how quickly all, we all just went, oh man, actually, that's loose better than yeah, blankets. Yeah, because that's Don't in our it. lifetime. Certainly as a kid, I did not have a duvet for quite a long time. No, it's Victorian originally. But yeah, I think they became a lot cheaper, which is why in our lifetime, like duvets became a thing. Oh, yeah. Okay. And they probably started making them out of like synthetic stuff and not like actual birds Feathers. and stuff. Yeah. So that would have been cheaper as well, right? Yeah. The things you learn on this podcast. <laughs> Thanks for oh, no. tuning in. I'm glad we had this chat, our, guys. Our roughshod history of the duvet. <laughs> <laughs> Coming up later, a year after US and British troops pulled out of Afghanistan, I talked to campaigner Zara Zaidi about the plight of Afghan women and girls. In Jenny of the Blocks, I'm talking retirements galore and the start of the US Open. And in Rated or Dated, we're asking if that really was the most efficient way to enter a building <laughs> as we watch 1987's Lethal Weapon. But first, no Bush Telegraph this week, but just a little reminder that if you enjoy our content, you could support us by chucking a bit of cash at our Patreon, which you'll find at patreon.com forward slash standard issue. In return, you'll get ad-free podcasts, the warm glow of helping us to make this excellent content, and at some point, a shout out. So thank you, Rosa Jennings O'Connor. We appreciate you and your double-barreled name. Aww. We do. Thanks, Rosa. Or, because we know times are very tight for many, you can also support us for absolutely no money at all by giving our YouTube page a follow. You can most easily find that by typing Standard Issue Magazine into the YouTube search bar. There's no content right now, but we're working on it for when we reach a thousand subscribers. Ooh. And also... You know, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and spread the word about us. Thank you very much. Hello, I am joined on the Zoom by lawyer and campaigner Zara Zaidi. Zara, hello. Hi, great to be here. Thanks so much for coming on. I know you're a busy woman and we're going to find out why. We are going to be chatting about what's happening to women in Afghanistan. But before we get started on that, please could you tell the listeners a little bit about you and what you do? Sure. I used to be a lawyer. And then basically, I was studying when 9-11 happened, training to become a solicitor. And it just changed my worldview. I wanted to go and try and make a difference. So I moved to Asia. I started working in international development, often with a legal focus or economic development. And I slowly went more and more towards the human development side, working with vulnerable groups and working on ways in which to improve people's lives. And then when I got back to the UK, I continued to do a lot of international work, but I also worked around, you know, basically UK inequalities. So mm -hmm. for me, in my work, I try and help in the area that I can. And then that also supports some of the projects that I do in a completely voluntary capacity. Do you have a focus on women and girls? Is that something that you're really interested in? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm very much a woman of colour. I'm a feminist. I'm very aware of, you know, there's a constant struggle in terms of women's equality anywhere in the world, really. And for me, that's layered with the fact that I am a woman of colour. I am from a Muslim heritage, and that brings its own intersectional layers. For me, it's very much who I am, what I do and why I do what I do. So it's, it's absolutely essential. Yeah. Let's talk about Afghanistan and just a little recap for the listeners because it is a very complicated situation. On August the 15th, 2021, so just over a year ago, following an evacuation of US and UK troops that was, to put it very mildly indeed, a clusterfuck of mishandling, the Taliban took power once more in Afghanistan. It was bad news for the majority of the Afghan people, but it has had a particularly devastating effect on Afghan women and girls. Sarah, please could you tell us a little bit more about what is happening on the ground in Afghanistan right now? I mean, we have to probably go back to the time the US started negotiating with the Taliban separately to the government, separately to an you know, inclusion of women or other minorities. Mm -hmm. Basically, that was a signal to the Taliban that, you know, we want to exit. Basically, you provide us away. And that deal was somewhat left up into interpretation as to what the Taliban would actually do mm -hmm. if they were to fill the, all, the, all the conditions. And so when the, the countdown to the U.S. pullout began, and it was clear that Biden was also going to agree to the pullout. So in the countdown, what started happening is the whole of the summer, the Taliban basically retook half of Afghanistan. Yeah. Um, it was fully ready. And, and it was met by 
demoralized Afghan troops who knew that not only was the US pulling out and all the allies, but the logistical support, the remaining, you know, remaining contractor support, there would not be any uh, small allied force there to, to assist or train. You know, they were they were pretty demoralized. And so the Taliban essentially reached the, the gates of, of Kabul by the 15th. And at the same time, the Afghan president swiftly departed. Within a matter of weeks, Afghan women were left with a completely changed country. And they had had no say in how that country was to be changed. Mm-hmm. They were left as the group facing the most devastating impact of that change. Because if the Taliban were going to continue to be what we know the Taliban to be, they would be left with no rights And that's exactly what we've seen. So in terms of what they're facing, they can't work. Girls can't study. So overnight, dreams have been banished. You know, hopes, dreams, the ability to feed your family, Mm. the ability to be fully empowered, the ability to make a difference, the ability to help your people, to help your neighborhood, help your community, help your sector. All of that's gone completely overnight. And then the sense of independence as a human being has gone they can't leave the house unaccompanied really and they have to wear the burqa and if they don't even their family could be beaten up or taken in for questioning so overnight their very independence as women with bodies has been subject to control and erasure by the Taliban and across every echelon society they do not have the ability to even enter they've got to go to public parks on different days to men they can't go to mosques they can't queue this is a country starving 20 people face starvation they can't queue for a loaf of bread on their own you know they're just, they're just suddenly places that they simply can't walk freely and what i would say is think of what you were like what any of us were like during lockdown mm. how restricted we felt yeah. And we were only locked in for a month. Now imagine if that's your future existence. It's hard to wrap your head around it because you see the set of rules that the Taliban are passing down, that they're enforcing. And what they actually add up to is women just being too scared to go out and ending up prisoners in their own home. They're complete prisoners in their own home. It's complete lack of freedom. It's complete erasure of self. There's no pathway out. They have no future. For the rest of their lives, they know that they, the Taliban do not want girls to be educated. They do not want women to work. They do not want women to dress the way they want to dress. They do not want women to express certain views. They do not believe in democracy. They do not they believe in such a puritanical, extreme, misogynistic, violent version of what they call Sharia that, you know, women just face erasure. Yeah, and they're obviously putting things into place that that will move forward throughout the generations. Afghanistan is the only place on earth where girls are banned from secondary or high school, depending how you phrase that. And so when in the last couple of weeks, 40 Afghan women marched in front of the education ministry demanding work, bread, freedom, it was an extraordinary show of courage, defiance and strength in the face of the Taliban's brutality. But that that's not surprising to you at all, is it? No, I mean, I mean, you know, we've got to be very careful about uh, applying any kind of victim narrative to Afghan women. They are the ultimate survivors Mm -hmm. and their bravery. It goes back centuries. You know, there, there are Afghan women leaders who who define the patriarchy, who led movements and who in a freed Afghanistan were models for a new Afghan feeling of identity. Mm-hmm. So, you know, these women are incredible people. But now, you know, given what we know about the the situation in Afghanistan where not, the Taliban already was targeting certain women for the jobs they did or the profile they had, for those 40 women to march down the streets of Kabul in front of the education ministry to demand work, bread and freedom was more resilience and more bravery than the majority of us could ever imagine. We do not know the level of consequences Mm. they might face for that. Bullets were fired in the crowd. Their families may be targeted. They may now be targeted. They took a huge personal risk Mm. uh, doing that march. But basically what the message from them is that they are still fighting. And can we and the world keep fighting with them? Yeah, yeah. And you mentioned it there. So many Afghan women face a direct violent threat to their lives from the Taliban because of the jobs they once did with the support and encouragement from us, from the UK, right? So the UK still has a moral duty to assist and protect them. But in the year that has followed the Taliban taking over Afghanistan, our government has just continued to fall short, hasn't it? 
Look, I mean, the, the narrative, and we're going to hear this time and time again as the 29th of August approaches, which is the anniversary of Operation Pitting. We're going to be told the operation was a huge success. In many ways, it was because it brought 15,000 people over in a matter of weeks. But the reality is the majority of those were British staff or Afghans who are linked to the Ministry of Defence. Now, you could say that's expected, but the government had 18 months to start evacuating mm -hmm. military-linked Afghans. I think we also needed to think of who are the vulnerable groups that if all of the Western allies leave might face harsher conditions. Mm -hmm. And once it was clear in the final few weeks that the Taliban was taking power, we should have prioritized getting vulnerable groups out. And the reality is we had only 295 people, principals from civilian categories of vulnerable people. That's it. And whilst there is no gender divide, there are only 11 women Fuck rights yeah. activists. Just... And that is not, that is a disgrace. It is a disgrace. That is a disgrace. Many of your listeners will, won't be as old as I am, but I remember when 9-11 happened and I remember us talking, you know, George W. Bush getting up and saying, we're going to help liberate the women of Afghanistan. Western allies talking about women's rights. UK aid helping to train women, empower women, educate girls. Those were deemed achievements and we were willing to just abandon these women. We should have prioritized the vulnerable groups. We should have prioritized women. And the fact that we didn't, the fact that the numbers don't hold up to that is, quite frankly, a tragedy. Yeah, Zara, it's almost like women's rights are sort of baubles for governments to decorate things with and sprinkle on top as a little extra, as opposed to actually meaning it. Um, I'm not <laughs> going to disagree with you that much there, because the reality is what's been happening since we left? You've got all these international conferences on Afghanistan where... Uh, Western governments are talking about, you know, the G7, you know, is talking about humanitarian aid, is talking about the security situation. You know, you get women's rights and including women as a kind of last few bullet points. We've seen how many negotiating teams from the West have gone where there are no women in the frame. Yeah. If you want to give the Taliban a message, at least ensure that your negotiating teams are at least 50 percent women. Because then in order for them to get humanitarian aid, in order for their economy to be opened up again, in order for them to, I don't know, even have good regional relationships with a lot, you know, they need to move somewhat on women's rights. We haven't done enough yet. What our group is calling for is an international summit that's just focused on Afghan women and girls, yeah. because there's so many acute problems that need collective agreement and financial support, such as even those that were so-called lucky enough to get out. They've been scattered to the winds. Totally displaced, yeah. Totally displaced. So, you know, you'll have one women's network that's now across 15 countries. You'll have families now across 10 countries. They were Afghans with jobs, with positions, with a neighborhood, with a house. Some are still in hotels. Some are in one-bedroom flats with a whole family. Some still haven't got access to jobs. My English could improve. Certainly, you know, some of them need language support. They need training. Some groups need trauma counseling. So there's all of that. You know, what are the resettlement needs of Afghans? That's one massive issue across countries. And, you know, how can we learn the lessons? You know, who's doing what well and what's working and just pool that knowledge. Then you've got the Afghans who, who were stranded, who were left in Afghanistan. And it's clear the West can't bring everyone over, right? Mm -hmm. So therefore, there is responsibility to come up with a solution for those who are in the country, who are now living under this brutal, misogynistic and violent rule of the Taliban. 20 million people are starving. How are we getting humanitarian aid to the most vulnerable? How are we getting it to women in remote communities? How are we getting it to children? We need that. There's no long-term planning here. What happens if the humanitarian situation leads to civil war? Everyone I'm talking to says civil war is seven months away. Right. Guess who suffers the most in war? Vulnerable groups, women, children, the elderly, the disabled. Yeah. Are we ready for that? How are we going to help them? And are we doing enough to help neighboring countries to deal with the overflow of refugees that's going to follow if conflict breaks out? You know, and are we making sure that those neighboring countries have the right safeguarding process in place to help women? You know, you've got women overnight stranded in Pakistan. Yeah, yeah. You know, are we thinking about their safeguarding issues? Are we thinking about their rights if they remain in third countries? Some have now been in third countries for a year. So are we making sure that 
third countries who themselves may be developing nations have the resources to deal with that. There's so much to deal with. I mean, the fact that there hasn't been a global summit on Afghan women and girls just shows you where women are on the agenda in terms of Western governments. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. And just to add to that, there is currently no way for vulnerable women and girls in Afghanistan to apply to settle in the UK. But that is something that you are working towards, isn't it? So you've got two routes, right? You've got the so-called old military defense route, which was which was the Arab scheme. And then you've got the Afghan citizen resettlement scheme, which is called ACRS. But at the moment, the majority of people who, who can come are those referred by the UNHCR from third countries. But the majority of women are still stuck in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Like the UNHCR refers from camps. It refers from third countries. So how are we going to get to the women stuck? There needs to be some sort of process where we can allow women in Afghanistan to be referred somehow. And the problem there is that there is no route for women to apply. A week ago, a woman judge came to me and said she had 11 female LGBT activists who were stranded and whose lives were at risk. How could we get them out? And I was just sitting at the end of the, end of the phone, not knowing how to help because there's no way to apply for them. Mm-hmm. There's no route for them at all. It doesn't matter how much at risk they are. We've got a petition out. We had a letter out signed by female MPs, Afghan women leaders, and a whole set of activists, including my group, Action for Afghanistan, and organizations like Force Society and Mumsnet, to please create a specific asylum and resettlement pathway for Afghan women at risk, because otherwise their lives are at risk. Lots of things have knocked Afghanistan off the front page because the world is in crisis all over the place. But we need to hear the stories, the voices of women and girls in Afghanistan. But obviously, because of the regime they're living under, that is very difficult to do. One of the first places I gave money to last year was Rukshana Media, which is run by women. How else do we make sure we are hearing women and girls' voices from Afghanistan? There are a lot of Afghan women leaders in the UK who are running NGOs that can have direct support. There are a lot of women Afghan leaders who are running networks who can identify some vulnerable groups. And within the Afghan volunteer groups and charities, we also know where, for example, there's a family facing starvation or there's a woman stuck in a safe house and she's running out of money. You know, there are networks out there. But the, but the other thing is, you know, we we need to have a proper process in place to be able to help Afghan people in the way we're helping Ukrainians, for mm-hmm. example. Mm-hmm. I'm a co-author of a scheme for home, called Homes for Afghans because the reality is a lot of Afghans are still stuck in hotels. It's been eight, nine months that they've been in that situation. And what people don't realize about Homes for Ukraine, the thing that that does, it mobilizes civil society to help with the solution, right? They help with integration, they help with language classes, they help with social cohesion, and it brings people together. If you had something corresponding for Afghanistan, there'd be less issues about, you know, will they integrate? What are the English language requirements? Because a lot of neighborhood, you know, just, just by having the kind of services that volunteer groups, you know, the activism groups could provide would help so much. And then, you know, there's no way right now for Afghan women to be really involved in the solution building for Afghanistan. There's no way for Afghan women leaders to input on the humanitarian aid situation or ongoing peace and security issues or on, you know, ascertaining who are the vulnerable groups for resettlement. So one thing that my group of volunteers have done is that we pushed for the creation of an of an APPG, an all-party parliamentary group for Afghan women and girls. And what that will do is focus solely on this issue and work with advisory groups of Afghan women and help bring them into the process so that they can help give solutions. Because no one's a better expert on Afghan women than Afghan women. Absolutely. No one's a a better expert on the issues facing Afghan children than their mothers. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to include them better in the conversation because what's been happening is Okay, I'm going, to be, I'm going to be bloody blunt here. They are more than a photo shoot for a Twitter page. Totally. I would like yeah, to see totally. not photo shoots of politicians talking about how they met Afghan women and they discussed the future of Afghanistan and prioritizing women and girls. And all it is is almost a social media post. I want proper action yeah. and proper inclusion. Mm-hmm. I want to see social media updates from politicians saying, we had the fifth meeting 
with the Afghan women's group who advise government or advise the women's APG. And we decided that this is what we were going to do on getting humanitarian aid to the most vulnerable. This is how we we're going to support remote learning so Afghan girls can still learn, even if it's in secret. Yeah. We are going to support Afghans women's needs such as training, education, counseling. There are real things we can do now. And so far, it's all talk. It's all talk. There are real things we could do. There are real things that British citizens like you and me, if we wanted to help, we could make tangible change right now. Okay, Zara, where can people get more involved and what can we do? I'm on Twitter at Zara underscore Zaidi. There's also a Twitter page for Action for Afghanistan. If you want to get involved, just contact me. But really get behind our campaign for a resettlement route for Afghan women and girls, because that will literally save thousands of lives immediately. It will also give hope to women that we're listening to them. They're still fighting. We need to stand and bloody fight with them. They're still risking it all for their freedom. And if we believe ourselves to be feminists, which I know we all do, we've got to stand with them and fight as hard that they're fighting under the Taliban, for heaven's sake. We need to fight as hard for them in our respective countries and say there's a lot more we can be doing to support them. So please support our petition for an Afghan resettlement route for women. Please support the things we're, we're doing around trying to include Afghan women more in the policymaking process via, for example, the, the APPG for Afghan women and girls, via all our calls to always center the views of Afghan women and just get involved. And nothing is stopping a voluntary group from saying, right, in my community, I'm going to start collecting books for Afghan children who are here. Now, once you have those books, drop me an email, mm -hmm. find me on Twitter, and I will find a place for them. If you think, hey, I've got two hours where I can chat online in a Zoom and help someone's English, drop me an email, drop me a mention on Twitter. There'll be people who automatically, who will immediately know what to do with that. There's so many ways we can help. We are not powerless. You know, change doesn't always come top down from governments. Change comes from people saying we are going to help. We need to help. And we can and we will. Oh, yes, please. Yes, please. Thank you. The only thing I would add to that is it's really hard sometimes to remember that just because another crisis is on the front page, that the crisis before that has not been fixed. It is still ongoing. There are still other people who need our help. Sarah, thank you so, so much for chatting with me. Thank you. And thanks for raising it because it says a lot about who we are as a society in terms of who we help and why. We should always be about helping the most vulnerable. We should always strive to be an open, caring and sharing society. And they're clearly people who are fleeing the most extreme violent circumstances. And there's more we can do to help them. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks, that time of the week where we applaud rapturously as we discuss all things women's sport. And it's a story of sadness this week, interspersed with appreciation and admiration as we pay tribute to yet more retirements from the world of sport. First up, let's start where we left off last time. Serena Williams, it's her last hurrah at the US Open this week, getting underway against Danka Kovinic this morning. Kovinic is ranked 80th in the world. And under present circumstances, that's not an easy ask of Williams, or rather it wasn't an easy ask of Williams. However, she did it. She won 6-3, 6-3, and she's through to the second round. But she will be up against the second seed, Annette Contivate, and that's going to be tomorrow or Wednesday. One way or another, I am sure that we'll be talking about her again very soon. For anyone interested, which is probably quite a lot of our listeners, Andy Murray won his first round match against 24th seed Francisco Serendulo. Guys, it is the hope that kills you. Speaking of hope, Emma Raducanu, the 11th seed, gets her title defence underway in the early hours of Wednesday morning against Alice Cornet. So unless you're one of our Patreon members listening to this ad-free and a little bit early, you'll know how that ended by now. But it's a tough draw. She's been up against all manner of injuries for pretty much the whole of the year. Most recently, there's been a wrist injury, which she says isn't serious, but my feeling, and this is not exactly insightful given her performance this year, there's no way she's going to win this. I, I do not see her 
defending that title. Okay, moving on to more bittersweet news. Two massive retirements were announced in the Lionesses camp in the last week. 35-year-old Jill Scott, capped 161 times in her 16-year international career, announced that she would step down. She's the second most capped England women's player after Farrah Williams. And this is not enormously surprising news, to be honest. I think most people would have expected it. But we can be absolutely delighted that she does so with that Euro medal under her belt and with practically the last touch of the game as well. And also, lest we forget, the absolutely iconic moment where she very visibly shouted, fuck you, you fucking prick, at one of her opposition players in the final. I mean, the bitch grabbed a tip. I think she got off lightly. Perhaps less expected, at least by me anyway, was the announcement that record goal scorer Ellen White would retire at 33. White still scores a lot of goals. She still looks really menacing on the pitch. But she says the decision was accelerated after she suffered a punctured lung during an acupuncture treatment for a back spasm. That injury, she says, was really traumatic and she's still working through it. But also, on top of that, As you would expect, it's massively affected her fitness, which has been a problem in the last year. They're both hugely inspiring and brilliant players and we'll miss them horribly. But the good news is we have plenty of talent coming through at the same time. We've got some World Cup qualifiers coming up in the next month or so, including against the USA. So we'll be able to see them in action again very soon. And that will be that will be a massive match. That's all from me this week. And I'll be back next time with more women's sport. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Jen, what film that we watched this week has a title that also describes its big star? (laughs) (laughs) I was wondering when we were going to make that joke. (laughs) This week, we watched 1987 buddy cop action drama Lethal Weapon, starring Massive Weapon himself, Mel Gibson, more on him later, and Mm. Danny, not the father of Donald Glover in the lead roles. I'm too old for this shit. (laughs) I'm crazy enough to do this shit. Carry on, Jen. (laughs) It also features Darlene Love and Gary Boosie. I want to open with a question because I don't know anything about Gary Boosie. I often hear him mocked (laughs) and I don't really understand why because it's a little bit before my time. Can anyone explain this to me? Is it literally because of his face? Um, No, I mean, there's... There's there's more things to it than that. Yeah, I mean, I think he makes quite a lot of crap, or he mm. has made quite a lot of crap. He seems to say become, yes to any film he's offered. He's sort of stereotypical henchman, as he is here. I think he's in Big Wednesday, which is actually a really good film about surfing. He does a lot of eye acting. I think that's what yeah. it is. He's wild of eye. Personally, the thing okay. that makes me laugh about him is in The Leftovers, he is one of the celebrities that vanishes and i don't know why but it's him the pope and shakira i think it's just (laughs) such a random collection of people it really makes me laugh yeah i'm with hannah on this one that's why he makes me laugh he's also mentioned in sharknado am i right is Mm, he in i think so he's mentioned all the time in a sort of figure of mirth type way and i was just a bit like what has gary boosie ever done to you anyway well possibly because sharknado has things about surfing in it and as i I think he's in Big Wednesday, I Mm. think. It's very nice to see him having such a lovely time in Lethal Weapon. Well, thanks for that explanation, guys. We've digressed a bit, but that is is very much my fault. I asked the question. Anyway, the film and the rest of the franchise was phenomenally successful. There were four in total in the original franchise, followed by a 2011 reboot, a TV spin-off and even a spoof movie. The first film in the franchise, i.e. this one, made $120 million on a budget of $15 million, which is not bad. And right. Roger Ebert, our old mate, he gave it four out of four stars. Mm-hmm. Wow. He said that the film's director, Richard Donner, and I quote, tops himself, which is an unfortunate turn of phrase in this context. Yeah, yeah I thought that last line was uh, was interesting. Mm. Let's talk about Donna for a minute, the yes, director. So he's responsible for some huge films, including a couple of my favourites, The Goonies. I know you guys talked about this previously, but I didn't hear it, so I'm just going to ignore it. And indeed, <laughs> yeah. 
Scrooged, a film which I know Mickey also loves. Mm. As well as that, he directed The Omen and the first and second Superman films. So his star was sort of fully ascending at this time. If we look seven years into the future from 1987, he's making Maverick. So I guess you win some, you lose some, right? That's Maverick as in the Western with your man Mel Gibson and Jodie Foster. Yeah, they've obviously, they obviously just love each other. Anyway, fun fact, this film could have been directed by Leonard Dr. Spock Nimoy, but he turned it down because he didn't fancy directing an action film. Slightly tangential fact here, but I was today years old when I discovered that Nimoy directed Three Men and a Baby. Oh, that's that's new information to me Mm. as well, Jen. Blew my mind. Anyway, I didn't even know he was a director, to be honest. I just thought he was Mr. Spock. And he writes those baby books. (laughs) (laughs) That's Dr. Spock, Jen. It's different. (laughs) The film was written by Shane Black. He goes on to write a bunch of other films in this sort of action crime genre. The Last Boy Scout, The Long Kiss Goodnight, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, to name but three. He said that with this film, his first feature, he was looking to write an urban western. Now, I know shit all about westerns, but I know a woman who does, so Hannah Dunleavy will come back to this. Mm. By the point this film was made, Danny Glover's career hadn't exactly taken off, but Gibson was cast off the back of an already hugely successful Mad Max franchise, young and sexy and pre-drunken anti-Semitic rants. Gibson plays Martin Riggs, a former Green Beret aka Special Forces soldier who does a surprising amount of fighting in A, water, B, with no shirt on and C, with his thighs. Who knew? Uh-huh. <laughs> it's like a Bond girl. <laughs> it really is. It's, it's odd. I'm for the uh, equal opportunities nudity in this anyway. He quite clearly has some mental health problems and I'm going to say some unprocessed PTSD. He's working in narcotics in the LAPD on a downward spiral after the death of his beloved wife in a car crash. He's not in a very good way. In fact, he's suicidal. However, he gets thrown together with homicide sergeant and family man Roger Murto when Riggs's superiors fail to take his mental health problem seriously and decide he's just faking it to get early retirement and a pension. They are, of course, very different policemen and initially they clash. I'm too old for this shit. <laughs> I tend to say that as many times as Danny Glover says that in this film. <laughs> They're drawn into a tangled web after a young woman, Amanda, who transpires to be the daughter of Murto's Vietnam friend, Michael Hunsaker. They say his name a lot in it. Um, he... Michael, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> she apparently kills herself, though is found to have taken drugs laced with poison directly before doing so, leading our heroic duo to suspect foul play. I mean, I could go through the plot here, but basically it becomes fiendishly complicated, ridiculously stupid, taking in an ill-conceived boat repair, awkward family meals, a kidnap, an excessive number of shootouts, some torture and a police car through the side of the family home. The answers to the questions, do they get their guy and do they get each other, are, alas, utterly predictable. It's macho at times, it's deeply misogynistic and despite Mick messaging me before watching it and telling me to skip the opening five minutes because of a long drop suicide leading me to deeply regret my choice, I actually didn't hate it. Mm. Mick, I think you've said that you used to enjoy this in your youth and there are elements of it that I can I can totally understand why that would be the case. So I want to know more about why young Mick liked it but first of all, Hannah, have you seen this before? I have, but probably not for 30 years, if not longer. Yeah. Yeah. The first big question uh, goes out to my mum, and it's, why was young Mick allowed to watch this? (laughs) Yeah, because this is an 18, isn't it? It fucking should be. Exactly, but it actually clearly has. There's no messing around. This is a 15. Maybe there's like some, you know, decisions on on what your kids might be able to hear and see. No, this is fully an 18. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So, uh, Anne, if you're listening, she doesn't. (laughs) Why? (laughs) Why was this on in my house so often when I was 13, 14? It seems to explain a lot about my choices in men moving forward, but we don't have time for that on this podcast right now. What I would say is I think... First of all, I think when a lot of people think of Lethal Weapon, they actually think of Lethal Weapon 2, which is a very different vibe. It's still very much shoot first, don't do anything at all, never mind later. But it is a lot softer and less 
brute machismo than this one. I think mm. this one is way darker. And I think that makes it a much more interesting film, actually, because I also still like it. Didn't hate it. Would go so far as to say, you know, found it very interesting. Could I talk about one of the things that I think it does quite well? Mm-hmm. Like, so the bits in it that I genuinely enjoyed were the bits with Murto's family. Because I think, like, the dynamic there, apart from that, there's a slightly weird bit where it feels a bit like him and his daughter, a bit odd. Like, what's she doing sitting in the bath with him? It's, or, like, on the side yeah. of the bath with him. And and why the low, the creepy saxophone music when she emerges in this, like... I the 80s, though, isn't it? I know, but it's it's... The, it felt a bit weird but I felt that like the dynamic between him and his kids and his wife and whatever was really natural and really lovely and really heartwarming and I suppose it's supposed to be because that's the kind of guy he is right but yeah, exactly. I didn't really like all the stuff about his wife not being able to cook I thought that was a bit unnecessary but yeah make your own dinner then Roger well mm. exactly you fucker but <laughs> I but I did actually I thought that those scenes and I think the dinner scene like with his daughter where she's obviously got the hots from Mel Gibson is genuinely funny and genuinely well done. Mm. Hannah, was there anything you liked about it? <laughs> Listeners, you can't see Hannah's face, but she's she's not smiling. I'm just gonna put that out there. <laughs> yeah, I really, really didn't like it. Uh, in fact it was worse than I thought it might be because I had in my head this idea that it was, you know, of an ilk of film. Uh, obviously, some of the films that you mentioned, like The Long Kiss mm. Goodnight, which I, I would say is actually a good film and funny, genuinely funny film. And Die Hard, which is, you know, again, of this ilk. All of those have what I would say, you know, some sort of like humour in them. And I thought this was pretty joyless. It was pretty devoid of humour. But the idea that this guy has like his wife has just died and they all think he's putting it on that he's upset. Mm. It's just, you know, it just seems entirely out of out of touch. It's got some ridiculous, just ridiculous, ridiculous stuff in it. Like, for example, at one point, Mel Gibson chases down a car. I mean, how can he run as fast as a car? It's ludicrous. I think that's quite a big action trope, though. You quite often see people chase mm, cars yeah. on foot. I think the thing about this is it's it's where a lot of the action tropes come from. And that's what makes it even more stupid now is all of that, you know, Roger's, Roger's bought a boat for his retirement and Roger's getting too old for this shit. That is literally the stuff that is now used in comedies. In fact, this did inspire one, didn't it? Loaded Weapon. And all of the stuff I remembered, it turns out, is all from series two. You know, people, the South Africans wanted diplomatic immunity. And, you know, the toilet bomb and all of that stuff comes from, actually comes from later ones. So, yeah, there, were, there wasn't really anything to recommend it, I have to say, for me. So what do you think about the the idea that it's an urban Western? Mickey actually said that to me as well in a message. Yeah, that... it was Shane Black who said he wanted to do an urban Western, which I did not know this when I sent Hannah a, a message where I called it a hard-boiled buddy cop western and I said I'm pretty sure you're going to take issue with me using that word but I stand by it. I mean I know what 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 they're saying about western because the concept of a lot of westerns including many of the best westerns is about a man who gets the opportunity to redeem himself you know usually they are way older you know if you look at the sort of the classics of the genre like the wild bunch and unforgiven you know, they're generally older men who 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 have nothing to gain by what they do. You know, they, you know, in the world bunch, they literally do it because they feel like it's the first time in their life that it was the right thing to do. Whereas it, so it doesn't mm. really fit here because like Riggs is, A, I don't know what Riggs has done that's so bad in the past as a, you know, particularly. He's killed a lot of people, he says, doesn't he? As as part of his job, though, do you know what I mean? He, that was... he also does continue to kill yeah, yeah, quite that's a not, lot of people. That's not his redemption so, isn't yeah. to stop killing people. <laughs> no. no, but but also his redemption is, it's his. It's not a redemption, it's his job, he's doing his job. He's a copper. He, or what he does is within his job. And in the, uh, the, the sort of the classic Western format, what makes it a redemption story is it's not their job. It's none of their fucking business. They go ahead and do it anyway. I think the redemption arc is very basic, in fairness. It's very slight. And it is very much a personal redemption story in that Mm. he finds another reason to stay alive. His redemption is not being... I don't even know that suicidal's the word. It's like he doesn't care about life anymore, so Mm. he takes a lot of risks, which is different 
to me when it comes to describing what suicidal is. But yeah, his, his pretty basic redemption is he finds another reason why he is going to stay alive and he gets acceptance into Myrtle's family. So mm. I wanted to talk to you, Mick, about the mental health side of it because the the conversation there is like it's it's handled very badly but i wondered because this is 1987 mm. obviously there's all sorts of toxic masculinity in this it's so macho it's so ultra violent you've got this guy who's obviously struggling emotionally but like but his hair is still really quaffed it isn't though Beautiful. it isn't i think it's quite wild and it's so much wilder than wild. in the following uh it's lethal really weapons. styled it's styled it's very it's... 80s yeah so he's like obviously really struggling what do you think about the way they handle it in this because it because you could argue that it's actually a bit ahead of its time i would agree with you because i think yeah when you when we look at it now 35 years on and it is it's Mm. exactly what hannah says it's outrageous that anyone is doubting Mm. that he is actually feeling this way the one person who isn't doubting is the psychiatrist they've had who's analyzed him and gone "Uh ah this guy isn't messing around he's really Mm. really sad and she's trying to tell people and the men at the top ain't listening because you know then maybe they'd have to face up to various things in their life or things that come with capital t capital j the job right that they're Mm. having to do and also she's a woman so yeah yeah, and also Mm. she's a woman she's also in scrooge little uh, tangent there yes yes so i do think it's quite ahead of its time i also think it's very of its time two films that have been mentioned about it both starring bruce willis yeah bruce willis's character is in such a dark place in both of those films and the way he handles that is to like fucking macho it up bang 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 shoot 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 and that violence as a way of redemption is so toxically macho but it is so 1980s this kind of study of a man on the edge within an action film and i think it falls into this i think it's really relevant in that respect mick i hadn't really been thinking about this while i was watching it but just from what you've said there, I think it's still really relevant to conversations that we have today about mm. toxic masculinity and, and about gendered emotions and blah, blah, blah. So I do actually think there is a nugget of something in it. But yeah, I think the way they deal with it is horrendous. It feels <laughs> but... kind of reckless, doesn't it? And I think mm. for me, Lethal Weapon 2, it, it, it's got exactly what Hannah says. It's got that it's got a lot more humour in it, but it's not as interesting to me because the sharp, difficult, unpleasant edges of Riggs have all been sort of smoothed down. He's still a maverick, you know, fast forward seven years and he's actually maverick, but he is still a maverick, but he is also like, he's just quips and lols and better hair kind of thing. As opposed to, Riggs is actually, we're rooting for him because he's our main guy, but he's quite unpleasant. Are Mm. we rooting for him? Yeah, I I I was, yeah, totally. I was, yeah. I did enjoy all the shirtless, not in that way, uh, but I enjoyed the the concept of the shirtless water thigh fighting and that they've obviously done <laughs> what we talk about when we've watched other films. They've thrown something in for the ladies. If you're going to drag your girlfriend <laughs> along to this, here's something for you, love. Fair play. Hannah and I did talk about this. Like, why do women fancy Mel Gibson? Because I've never I think he seen was... it a good looking man but obviously it's very hard to look at him now you know without seeing the, all of show, the many yeah. many other things that mel gibson has done i mean are we are we going to talk about mel gibson well i have a really clear memory i mean because i was like say about 15 at the time well i would have been 15 my granddad was really poorly like it was right towards the end of his life and so he had like five daughters two of whom lived in america and they were like home to see him because I can remember being at his house and we're all crushed into his little lounge and uh, he was sitting in his chair and somebody suddenly went, oh my God, we need Sam Parkinson on because Mel Gibson's on there tonight. And then there was just this (laughs) rush of women, this rush of women into the lounge. And my granddad just looked at me and he said, you? And I just sort of shook my head and he sort of nodded at me and it was me and my granddad against the whoosh of estrogen that rushed into the room of women just going, Mel Gibson. He's got yeah. a handsome face in the same way to me that Kevin Costner's got a handsome face. You know, it's it's, it's not saucy, saucy, but I can see why women of our mum's age, auntie's age, got like proper frothy knickered about him. And I think it's really problematic because I think it's the hair and the macho. So be careful what you wish for, ladies, because he mm, absolutely, yeah. you know, you look at his filmography 
And, you know, Gibson and Martyrs, tick. Gibson and Broken Men, tick. Gibson and Absolute Toxicity, tick, tick, tick. Oh, there's a pattern. What drew you to those roles, Mel Gibson? It's interesting. When you Google him, it is quite shocking the number of articles written about why is this man still working in Hollywood? I mean, it's yeah. not shocking because obviously he's alleged to have done, but the shocking thing is that he is. Like, why? I, I find that really shocking on the basis of the things that he's been accused of, that he has not been excommunicated. Like, he had a bit of a time out, didn't he, for, for yeah. a while? But he's. Well, it's the same as it ever was for famous men. Who is he in Bojack Horseman? Who's that? that character that's supposed to be him that keeps doing shit things and then getting forgiven and then doing shit things again. Yeah. I mean, and he's very clearly Mel Gibson because yeah, Mel Gibson keeps being invited back into the fold, which is weird because, you know, I can't imagine now why Mel Gibson is a valuable asset to a film because actually I can't imagine there being a particular amount of huge Mel Gibson fans anymore. No. You know, the, they're sort of my, he's my, so tainted. But also that generation, I don't know if they go to the cinema so much, of, of those generation of women who thought he was great. I don't know if they go to the cinema so much anymore. I think he seems pretty tainted for most of the younger generation. Mm. And also, I don't think he was that terrific in the first place. Do you... He was box office catnip in his time though, right? Exactly, mm. but I can't imagine still being box mm. office catnip. Now, whereas, and he went off and he made like those sort of self-indulgent Kevin Costner's not a bad comparison because he went off and made those self-indulgent films. But Kevin Costner made Dances with Wolves, which is fucking epic. And Mel Gibson didn't... Those films weren't that. They weren't that good. Even Mm. the ones that were supposed to be, I don't know, Apocalypto or whatever it was that were supposed to be his big, you know, like, auteur projects. They didn't do that well. No. It's just... It's the same as it ever was, isn't it? I was thinking about this because obviously I knew it was going to come up and I was just like... Like, to watch this, I was like, right, I'm going in, and I, would I choose to watch a Mel Gibson film now? Probably not, but, you know, separating art from artist, but I don't think he's made a lot of art, as Hannah's mm. just sort of hinted. But, okay, watching it, I'm going to watch it and try not to just have that absolutely colour what I'm watching. Fine. And I was thinking, like, there's lots of stuff that we do this with. And if we were to remove from the canon of art, film, music, all of the men who had done bad things, provably done bad things, not even just rumours, provably done bad things, we would have a lot less art, music, film. Let's think about that, about women. If we were to remove all of the women stuff that was related to a woman who was problematic, I don't think we'd lose very much at all. No, the only way women would lose was because they were in the films that were with the problematic men. Exactly that, exactly that. I mean, where else are you going to see Patsy Kenzie except a lethal weapon (laughs) I think Hannah's going to pick Lethal Weapon 2 as soon as it's its birthday. (laughs) Fingers crossed, eh? Good God, no. It's pretty obvious what you're going to say, but let's do it. Rated or dated? Yeah, it's absolutely dated for me. Really ugly. I found this film to be really ugly. Yeah, I disagree. I mean, obviously, it's Hannah's opinion, absolutely. But yeah, for me, it's dated. It's so 80s, it's like basically a Duran Duran video, but still rated exactly what you said Mick I don't think I, well no I think I would say it's dated but I, I genuinely didn't hate watching it I had quite a nice time watching it. it it was nowhere near as shit or offensive to me as I thought it was going to be so I mean that's quite <laughs> damning with fake praise there. Mark, yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah who's up next who's next it's me Jen Mickey's not going to be here so she's not going to get the joy and by the joy I mean the Jen face <laughs> when she sees Daniel Day-Lewis. We're going to be watching Last of the Mohicans. Mick, where are you going on your on your holiday? Oh, it, it is our honeymoon. So, yeah you, yeah, you were right to nearly say that. We're going to Borneo to see the okay. orangutans. Because Jen and I, we will find you. Okay. I'll be behind that waterfall, as per. <laughs> <laughs> Standard issue for all women.